Good evening, it is 5 p.m. and you're tuned in to Kingston Currents here on CFRC 11.9 FM. Brought to you by the local journalism initiative, Queen's University, and What Will I Wear at 732 Princess Street. I'm CFRC's broadcast journalist, Christina Laurie, here to keep you up to date on all things limestone local news. To start us off, Hiroshima Day is approaching on August 6th, remembering the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So far, leading up to the event, the Hiroshima Day Coalition have hosted various events, including a showing of the film The Day After at the Screening Room, lantern-making events in the square, and other education opportunities. On Sunday evening, they will have a procession to commemorate the day. I sat down with Judy Wyatt of the Hiroshima Day Coalition to talk about the significance of Hiroshima Day. To start us off, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe give folks a bit of background on the Hiroshima Day Coalition here in Kingston? Yes, my name is Judith Wyatt, and I'm a member of the Hiroshima Day Coalition. And our coalition has been together with pretty much the same group of people um, on and off for almost 40 years. I started attending Hiroshima Day 40 years ago. And um, I, at that time in my life, I was thinking that maybe I would like to have children and realized that if I was going to have children, I wanted them to be born into a, a good world, a safe world. And I thought I better get involved in the peace movement. Mm -hmm. And so I got involved with um, Kingston Operation Dismantle and then Hiroshima Day seemed to be a logical connection of that. So we've been doing our our commemoration services on August 6th for a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that background as well. I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of remembering this event in 2023. In 2023, remembering Hiroshima and Nagasaki as the cities that were bombed by the Americans in the Second World War is extremely, extremely important. It's the first um, use of atomic weapons and more than 200,000 people were killed. The bombing of Hiroshima took place on August 6th and a lot of the people who, who fled from Hiroshima the, among the survivors, they, they fled to Nagasaki believing it would be a safer city. And Japan had already signaled to the United States its intention to surrender. But despite that fact, the bombs were dropped again on the city of Nagasaki. And ever since then, the bulletin of the atomic scientists have created something called a doomsday clock. And it's a clock that shows how close we are to midnight. And until recently, the closest that we've ever been to midnight, which stands for a repetition of these bombs, nuclear war happening again, has been 100 seconds to midnight. And recently, because of the war in Ukraine and the threats by Russia, it's been the clock has been moved to 90 seconds to midnight. So we are, in fact, closer to a repetition of a nuclear war than we have ever, ever been before. And it's very important to, to be cognizant of that. A nuclear war would be the worst kind of calamity, worse even than climate breakdown and climate change, because the world as we know it would be destroyed. There would be famine. There would be radioactivity. Um, it, it would be a, just a, a terrible, terrible calamity. And it surprises me that so many people are unconcerned about this. A recent poll of Americans asked them, what are the 10 things that they're most concerned about? A nuclear war didn't even make the list. So it's important that we remember what happened on August 6th and August 9th in Japan, and we reflect on the dangerous world that we live in today, where now not just one country has nuclear weapons, but there are eight countries that have nuclear weapons. Wyatt also discussed some of the events the coalition will be organizing. You were also just saying before we started this interview, you were at Novel Idea getting um, the window display set up that you have there. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that and what that will entail. Well, we've got two large banners, one that reads Nagasaki, one reads Hiroshima. 
the letters are vertical in black felt on a white, long white um, piece of fabric. And when we use them on the day of Hiroshima Day, August 6th, they're always there in the background. And as I said, I've been involved with this event for 40 years, and those banners were at the, the very first event I ever attended. So they're, they're more than 40 years old. So they're kind of relics for us. Mm -hmm. People who look at the display will see many books that are available at Novel Idea and magazines that are pertinent to the subject. Um, they'll also see a paper crane that's suspended in front of a banner that has been painted for a previous Hiroshima Day event. And if they look carefully around, they will see paper lanterns that have been used in the past. For many years, we've had families create uh, paper lanterns, which we floated on styrofoam uh, with a candle inside in a in a water. We've done that at the, uh, the fountain across from City Hall, Confederation Basin. And then we've done that in the pool at McBurney Park. And this year we won't have lanterns floating, but we will have them available for people to see and we will light them when dusk falls. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to the significance of lanterns for Hiroshima Day. I believe there is specific meaning behind them. Is that true? Yes, the lanterns are um, a, a way to acknowledge the passing of a spirit, remembering the spirit of somebody who's died and they are lit in, in memory of, of people. And this is something that, that occurs in, in Asian countries. And so when we've done this over the years, we've had people decorate them in whatever way they feel is appropriate. And some of them we saved th throughout the years. Many of our lanterns have things written on them in Japanese because in the summers, Queens often has um, an English language class for Japanese students to attend. And many times we've had Japanese students who are in Canada just for the summer attend our ceremony and are very pleased and touched that we so far from their home continue to remember this terrible event that they certainly know about. I'd also like to speak about the main event. I believe it's on August 6th. That will be the procession. Yes. Um, the procession will start at 7.30 from St. George's Church and there will be bells ringing at that time and we will process from there to St. Andrew's Church and the event is going to take place on the side lawn of St. Andrew's Church, which is on Princess Street. And we will have our banners, our Hiroshima and Nagasaki banners there, and we will have lanterns lit, and there will be some speeches and some songs. The other thing I will add is that at our event on the 6th, uh, there will be an opportunity to sign a postcard to send to the, our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie. Canada has not yet signed the, the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And this is a very, very embarrassing and shameful thing. We've worked very, very hard to sign other treaties. We banned cluster bombs, and that's something that um, Canada and, and landmines, and Canada was at the forefront of the banning of that. And to think that we are not a part of the treaty of uh, banning, pro prohibiting nuclear weapons, is is something that um, is, is very embarrassing for, for me as a Canadian. And so we will be urging Melanie Jolie through our postcards to get involved in that discussion and to have Canada sign and then ratify the treaty. And there's another opportunity on that day and at the, um, the lantern making at the market is to sign a petition asking our mayor, Brian Patterson, to become a mayor for peace. And there is an organization sponsored by the United Nations that is a coalition of, of mayors for peace around the world. There are 339 cities around the world that have a mayor for peace, and 113 of them are in Canada. 
And so we would like to see Mayor Patterson um, declare himself as a mayor for peace. Once again, that was Judy Wyatt with the Hiroshima Day Coalition. You can attend the peace ceremony on Sunday at 7.30 p.m., starting from St. George's Cathedral at 270 King Street and gathering at St. Andrew's Church at 130 Clergy Street. As of yesterday, July 31st, the Slate Music Video Program has officially received all of the admissions to be considered for this year's program. Now in its third year, this initiative, presented by the Kingston Canadian Film Festival and Tourism Kingston's Film and Media, connects the film and music scenes. As local film and media production companies will receive financing to create new music videos, featuring some of Kingston's top emerging bands and musicians. This project encourages local production and provides a free, professionally made music video for selected local musicians. All greenlit videos will premiere at the Kingston Canadian Film Festival in 2024. This year, production companies and musicians will be compensated for their participation in this program. Thanks to the Slate Family Foundation sponsorship, musicians will receive $1,000 for their participation in the Slate Music Video program per video. I sat down with Moira DeMorris to chat about this year's program so far. Would you like to introduce yourself and your involvement with this program? Sure. Um, my name is Moira DeMorest, and I'm the Music Commissioner with Tourism Kingston. Um, so I'm uh, part of one of the pieces uh, of this collaboration. Um, so this is a collaboration between uh, Kingston's film and media team, which is part of me, and also um, the Kingston Canadian Film Festival, and also funded through the Slate Family Foundation. And uh, this is, um, and so we are sort of the collaborators of the uh, Slate Music Video Program. Just for folks who aren't familiar with the program, I was wondering if you could, uh, could talk a bit about how it originated and the last few years that it's been running. Of course, yeah. So this program actually was launched um, in 2020. Um, and unfortunately, really until last year, it never really got um the you know the world premiere that it needed um you know the film festival looked a little bit different and the idea was that um, local production companies would receive funding to create new music videos and we would help to pair them with Kingston's top emerging musical artists um and through uh, the Kingston Film and Media and through Kingston Canadian Film Festival or KCFF um we would help to give the money to create these uh, music videos. And then we'd also give them the platform at the music at, or at, at the film festival in March to screen them and premiere them. So last year was the first year that we were able to do a premiere in public. Um, and uh, it was a really special um, event. And then um, obviously the, after the, the sort of the world premiere of these music videos, then they um, continued to live on in on our social channels but also you know the artist was able to do um, use them as a promotional tool and um, and share them with the world. Awesome and thank you for that background. I was wondering if you could also speak a bit to the motivating factors behind the project. Yeah so we at Film and Media and uh, and alongside KCFF were, were really interested in sector growth and uh, making sure that um, there's professional development opportunities for emerging filmmakers and emerging musicians. And so we're always looking for ways to um, to make sure that we can address that need and, and grow that sector. So um, 
Kingston is, uh, it, you know, has a, a huge wealth of musical talent, but we also have a lot of uh, emerging filmmakers and production companies. And so this was, it seemed like, a, you know, a natural fit to, to connect these film and music scenes and encourage local production and at the end offer a professionally made music video so that artists could, could share them and like share it with the, share it with the world. <laughs> Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I believe it's $1,000 for the artist. Is that right? Correct. So that's, mm-hmm. that's new this year. And that's been um, that's new. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So last year, um, we artists got um, the opportunity, uh, obviously, to have the music video and that part was funded. Um, and then we also were able to um, organize some some extra concerts around the film festival. Um, but this this year, um, with the addition of the Slate Family Foundation's um, funding, it's allowed us to also give to the artist as well. So the artist is also getting an honorarium um, for their time um, in uh, for the time and the participation of the program. Awesome. Yeah, that's really exciting. Is there anything else new this year that's like really exciting for you guys? I think just, you know, the continuation of the program uh, is is really the the most exciting thing for mm-hmm. us. We saw, you know, what it could be last year um, with these uh, world premieres um, that happened at the, f- the film festival. And it specifically happened in the the big room of the grand theater. So it really felt like this special um, red carpet experience for music and filmmakers. Um, and so that energy, um, you know, just to keep keep that that going and to expand and grow on that, I think that um, it's, a, it's a really special Kingston uh, program that we should be really proud of. So I'm um, exciting to see more um, performance opportunities and more um, linking sort of uh, marketing uh, abilities um, as the program develops and grows over the years. So um, we just want to get the word out that um, that that people should apply as a music if you're a musical artist or if you're a production company just wanting to start out um we really want to to spread the word to get um people interested in that program and and start to you know even if you're not um one of those those groups maybe even just keep your eye op- open for uh these musicians and and what what we sort of cook up over the the course of the year yeah absolutely and the 31st is the deadline for applications. I was wondering, I guess you're selecting artists at the end of August. I was wondering what this process is going to kind of look like. Yeah, so um, it's it's uh, the production companies essentially select the musical artists that they would like to work with. So we provide them with all of the submissions and help, um, you know, for production companies that might not be as familiar with the music scene, we're there to help and and sort of um, maybe make suggestions. But um, usually the production companies are, are picking their top three and then with uh, um, the committee of the film and media team, the Kingston Canadian Film Festival, um, we help to to just kind of navigate those conversations. So it's not just kind of like as much of like, you know, an artist is picked out of the hat. It's it's really sort of a, a bit of debriefing with the production companies and finding the right fit for both the the music video maker and for the musician too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and folks still have all weekend to apply, but how are applications looking so far? Are you getting lots of submissions? 
There, there are, there are, there's, um, there's always, I mean, there's a huge wealth of musical talent. So it's not surprising that there's some, some great bands that, uh, you know, have already applied. Um, but there's, you know, there's still room and, and we try to, um, we're sort of limited always by, um, you know, by the, by the scope, we'd love to give everybody their own music video, but um, we also encourage, you know, even if you didn't, uh, maybe if you applied in the past, or maybe if, um, you know, even if you're not quite sure, apply and, and, and we'll keep your name on file to, to, um, to hopefully find a collaboration in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure we're all very excited to see how these music videos turn out, who our artists are for this year. When are these premiering again? So they will premiere, um, at KCFF uh, in March of 2024. Um, and those dates, actually, it's February 28th to March 3rd, but it's sort of end of February, beginning of March 2024. Um, but you will get sort of some sneak peeks. So we're going to do a media event where we unveil the winners, or not the winners, sorry, the, unveil the pairings of the production companies and the music uh, musical artists. So you'll get a chance to sort of see how things shape up and um and uh, and then we'll we'll sort of be giving like teasers and behind the scenes um, uh, footage and pictures as the production companies and as the musicians uh, develop their video. Oh, that's awesome. And where can folks keep up with that on social media and everything? Um, probably the easiest place is just to go to visitkingston.ca. Um, and we have a film and media um link right on that page and and follow along there um you can also check out the kingston canadian film festival and there's um url is kingcamfilmfest.ca or kcff if you're looking on any of the social platforms on July 13th, a 200-foot-wide asteroid called 2023 MT1 passed by Earth but wasn't detected until two days after it had already passed. And this isn't the first time astronomers have been in the dark on asteroids coming close to Earth. In a piece of campus news, I sat down with Queen's professor Dr. Sadavoy to chat about general asteroid detection techniques, why they're so hard to find, and where asteroids tend to live in our solar system. Here's what she has to say. Well, to get us started, I guess, would you like to maybe introduce yourself and a bit of your background uh, in astronomy? Sure. Um, so I'm Sarah Sadovoy. I'm an assistant professor here at Queen's uh, in the physics department. Uh, my background is in uh, more astrophysics. So I study primarily how stars and planets form out of giant clouds of gas and dust in our galaxy. Um, just looking at mostly the initial conditions for what sets all of that off and then the evolutionary process to uh, make a new baby star and all the baby planets that come with it. Well, I was kind of curious, I think we, we talked about your research and everything, but what does your research look like? Like what do, are some of the techniques you use? What could a day look like for you? Oh my goodness, days are, are quite different from each other. Um, a lot of the research I do now is led by students um, since I have other duties that do keep me away from doing research. But when I am doing research, uh, it depends on which project has my focus. I have multiple little projects and big projects on the go at all times. Uh, I will potentially be putting in a proposal to get new data from a telescope. So that could be um, a good chunk of my day. Uh, requesting time from telescopes involves a 
uh, a process where you need to convince the people who make that decision that your project is awesome and they should give you the time. And if you are fortunate to get the time, then you get the date and you get the data, then you have the data to play with. And so sometimes my day is playing with telescope data and that can be I'm at the um, looking at and probing the data stage, or I'm at the analyzing the data stage, or I'm at the writing up the discussion about the data analysis for a publication stage. So there's multiple different ways that my day can go. And sometimes there's priorities, um, depending on if there's like a deadline. And then sometimes it's open-ended and I can choose what, you know, inspires me that one day. Uh, I also have collaborators from all over the world and sometimes they need me to do something uh, and sometimes I need to wait for them to do something. It's, it's Science is very much a community project. Uh, it's very rarely do you have some one person alone in a room doing everything on their own. It is very collaborative. So sometimes you you have lots of meetings to discuss the direction something will go to. So my day is very different, I would say, from one day to the next. A 200-foot wide asteroid passed close to Earth and it was undetected until two days later. Um, so I did want to talk a bit about that and pick your brain. So just as a first question, what are some of the techniques that we use to detect asteroids? Yeah, so it may seem strange, but asteroids are actually kind of hard to find. Um, and oftentimes they're found by chance. There are some people and there are some observatories and some instruments that are constantly looking for asteroids. But these are what we would call serendipitous detections. You don't know if you're going to find anything. You have to hope that you find something. And it is a challenge because big things like this can swing by and we may not know until it's a couple days from reaching its closest approach, or in this case, it was a couple days past its closest approach. But um, we will never know they're there unless we look. So this is why people are, are constantly looking. Uh, but primarily how you look for asteroids is you're looking for something that moves in the sky in a different manner than how most things move on the sky. So, you know, stars rise and set with the day. Um, so you have them rising um, uh, in the east and setting in the west in a very specific pattern because of Earth's rotation. Planets will move slightly differently from this, but in a, a manner that we still can map and predict quite nicely. And uh, that is primarily how everything moves. There's a little bit of shifting because the stars do move relative to each other, but it's very, very slow. So for the most part, things rise and set in very uh, specific ways. An asteroid or a comet or any sort of space debris in our solar system is going to shift a little bit differently because it's close enough to us that its own motion will show up um, from night to night or even over the course of a night. So what you're looking for is a faint streak in a image on the sky or over multiple images over multiple nights. You're looking for something that is moving relative to the stars. And that's hard to do if it's a very faint thing. We can see the planets, the brightest planets without a telescope, but you're with these asteroids, you need a telescope. Telescopes have small fields of view, so you have a limited part of the sky, patch of the sky that you can look at. 
And these things are faint, so it's hard to see, and you need to have lots of data to see if it's moving in a weird way. And so, yeah, it makes it really, really hard to find these things. And so oftentimes they are found only when they are really close to us because that's our best chance of seeing them. That's when they're going to appear the biggest and brightest. If they're super far away, they're much harder to detect. So there's a there's a limit to what we can see based on how much of the sky we're probing at any given time and just how bright these things are. They're not very bright. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of curious just about some of the numbers here. I think a lot of people are really hung up on the 200 foot wide part. For an asteroid, is that standard? Is that huge? What kind of sizes do asteroids come in? So there's a wide range of sizes for asteroids. Um, I would say, I mean, we probably have found, we've found over a million asteroids. Um, so there's a lot of space debris. Um, they can be, you know, few um, meters, like tens of meters across, or they could be um, tens to hundreds of kilometers across. So they have mm-hmm. a wide range of sizes. The bigger they are, the easier they are to see. Uh, and also the worse they are for us if they were to come into our, our space. Um, so small things are not going to be as concerning as big things, but there are fewer big things and they're easier to find. So people do monitor asteroids that have been found. As I said, we found over a million and they're put in different classes based on where they're located in the solar system. And there are uh, subclasses for those that swing close to earth. And those ones are specifically monitored so that, you know, if there's any change in the orbit, we will know. Their orbits are very well known, so we know they're not going to hit us. But if something were to happen, we would want to know uh, well in advance if, you know, possible. Mm -hmm. And um, well, you're saying there's a whole sort of subsection that might be more likely to swing closer to Earth. Is it common for asteroids to come close? And also, what does close mean, I guess, in in this context? So that's a good question. Um, Close does mean different things to different people. Um, So I guess um, I will say that the asteroids that we um, identify as being close could be, are generally known as uh, near-Earth asteroids or near-Earth objects, um, depending on who you talk to. Um, But even then, they're still, they could be swinging as close as, you know, tens of times uh, further than the Earth-Moon distance. All right. So Mm -hmm. it just means that they're in our neighborhood, but they're not that close. Mm -hmm. There's also objects which are known as Earth crossing asteroids. And those are ones that will have part of their time outside of our orbit and part of their time inside of our orbit, which means they do span that space and they could come close at some point. But because of the fact that space is really should be thought of as in three dimensions, they don't actually hit our orbit. So that's not a um, a major concern in that sense. The challenge with asteroids and, and specifically the Earth crossers is they could get perturbed. So if they have a close encounter, for example, with Mars or some other big object, if it's depending on where the asteroid originated from and what its orbit looks like, then its orbit could get altered. And that's where things become a a little bit more uncertain. And people don't like uncertainty when it comes to asteroids. (laughs) Uh, So this is why they're being very, very closely monitored. Just because 
If there is any change, then you know clearly we will want to know what that change is. So there, there are people who, for their living, constantly are monitoring the near-Earth asteroids and the uh, Earth-crossing asteroids so that we know what they're doing at all times. There are also asteroids in our solar system that are nowhere near us. The asteroids in the asteroid belt, they're pretty happy. They're in nice stable orbits. They're, they're beyond Mars's orbit. They're between Mars and Jupiter. There's a lot of them there. There's the Kuiper belt, which is beyond Neptune. Again, lots of asteroids. They're pretty happy there. And then you can get Trojan asteroids, which are asteroids that orbit with planets. So Jupiter has them and like all the big planets have them, like Jupiter has a lot. Mars even has some. And they've even recently discovered a Trojan asteroid with the Earth. So it's kind of like these are asteroids that orbit with the, the planet in lockstep with the planet, but it will not hit the planet. It's kind of like they're they're tied together, but they're 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 all happy. They're in happy orbits, mm-hmm. stable orbits. So um yeah, in terms of of uh close, close is relative. For some people, um, being within, let's say, 10 times the Earth-Moon distance is close. Uh, But I have heard of cases where an asteroid was discovered and its closest approach was within the Earth-Moon orbit. And that is very close. Mm -hmm. That is basically our backyard. But those tend to be much smaller, just because, again, size makes it harder to detect earlier. You can listen to the full interview with Dr. Sadavoy on the Kingston Currents podcast at podcast.cfrc.ca, where we get into more of Dr. Sadavoy's research, where she got her start in astronomy, and where astronomy enthusiasts can get their fix at Queens. That is all things current in Kingston for this week. Thank you for listening to CFRC's local news programming, brought to you by the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada under the Local Journalism Initiative, Queen's University, and Weddell Eyewear on 732 Princess Street. Be sure to stay tuned for more CFRC programming coming up next. What'll I Wear offers the best in vintage, funky, one-of-a-kind treasures, clothing, accessories, and a fabulous selection of jewels, vintage and new. Find the cutest purse, the most dashing of hats and sunglasses, everything to complete your individual look. What'll I Wear has it all. They can dress you from top to bottom. Find your new fashion fave at What'll I Wear at 732 Princess Street in Kingston. Visit their new location and follow them on Facebook to keep up to date with what's in store at What'll I Wear.